So today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to have an introduction to our series on theology. And you notice both of us are up here. We're going to share the responsibilities this morning. And I'll let you know up front, you know that um, our heart is always in opening up the scriptures to you and telling you what it says. Well, when you come to something like this, a a, uh, topical series, um, you kind of do a lot of picking and and choosing and a lot of what I'm going to call proof texting, which isn't always necessarily a bad thing. And um, so we're going to do that a lot as we go through the, the series for the next 13 weeks. It's going to be a lot of page turning and a lot of just calling out verses. Some of them I'll have you look up with us. Um, some of them we're just going to shout out to you because we're going to cram a lot of stuff into a little period of time. And so that's partly why we, I provided you with the, the notes and stuff where you can just scribble down a verse and you can look it up later. Today, we're not going to be, I'm going to call it scripture heavy, because we're going to be talking a lot about some different aspects of theology. We're going to end our time looking at some passages of scripture, but I won't say this is an apology up front, but we're not going to be in the word as much this morning, and you know where our hearts are, and I'm always cautious about doing that. But a lot of times when we kick off like even a series in a book, we do a lot of background information. There's a lot of stuff you have to cover that isn't necessarily in the scriptures. So we're going to be doing that this morning, but we will also be... Um, referencing some scripture maybe in scripture a little bit but just so you know that the rest of the series will not be like this morning necessarily we will be spending time looking up passages and in the word to see what the word says but let's start with where we're at today um, I'm going to ask the question what is theology a lot of times we think of theology as something very specific but I think you're going to learn this morning that it's much broader than what you think um, the simplest definition of theology is the study or the science of God. That's about as simple as you can make it. If you want to shorten it up even further, it's just the study of God. It comes from two Greek words, basically. You know, theos is the the word for God, so we have the study of, it'd be God, it'd be theology, so you got Godology or theology. So we're talking about the study of God. But I'm going to give you a more um, complicated definition, if you will, and then we're going to kind of break it down. So... Let me read this to you here. Since God is active, being, working in, among, and with his creation, theology also seeks to understand God's creation and how he interacts with it, including his most precious creation. Okay? There's an individual by the name of Millard Erickson. He wrote probably the premier theology textbook on systematic theology. It's about that thick. Almost every college and seminary uses it. It's been out for 20 to 30 years. It used to be three books that they crammed into one. And you're going to hear me reference him on occasion because out of all of the theologians that deal with systematic theology, and we'll define that in a little bit here, um, he's probably one of the best. And um, Dustin and I had relied upon four different major, fairly large theology books, um, partly because I need to be reminded of things myself, but it also helps us to coordinate things and bring things together. But Millard Erickson is one of them, and he actually proposed this as a definition of theology. That discipline which strives to give a coherent statement of the doctrines of the Christian faith, based primarily upon the scriptures, placed in the context of culture in general, worded in a contemporary idiom, and then related to issues of life. That's a mouthful, isn't it? So let me break it down for you here. I think I put this in your notes where you can, you'll notice I have a little lines with letters in front of them. So let's say it this way. So theology describes, 
That's your first D word there. Describes the doctrines of the Christian faith. It's what we believe. When we refer to theology, we're talking about a way to describe what it is that we believe as Christians. But it is also determined from the Bible. And that's critical. That's the next D word there. Everything we want to know and understand about God is ultimately derived from the scriptures. We're going to see in a moment, we're going to talk about what we can learn in observation of God's creation. But even that, because of our fallen nature, has to be defined by the Bible. Meaning that the Bible tells us how to interpret what we see. And so the second point there is that theology is determined from the Bible. That is our ultimate source. And so we're going to make the assumption as we go through this series that you're okay with that. Some people aren't. But that's our source. And we're not going to defend that as our source. We're just going to assume you accept that. That the Bible is the Word of God and it tells us everything we need to know about Him. Alright? Third point there is it's studied in the context of human culture. Meaning God reveals Himself to specific cultures at specific times in specific ways and we have to understand that. Why did God do something specific? Or why did He reveal something specific to the Israelites but maybe something slightly different to others? And it's because theology has to be understood and studied in a context of a culture and a society. Third or fourth one is it's worded in a way that we can understand today. That's important, isn't it? So we're going to do our best as we talk theology for the next 13 weeks. We're going to try to do it in a way that um, makes sense to us. We're going to word it in a way. And sometimes we're going to give you really big words that are important words. Because they're very precise. They've been used by the church for 2,000 millennium for very specific reasons. We're going to give you some of those big words. But we're also going to try to um, simplify it in some respects and talk theology in every man lingo, if that's the best way for us to do it. That's the way I understand it. I'm kind of a blue-collar Bible guy. I don't always like the big theological words, but I understand their importance. So we'll get both of that. The last thing there is it's understood. That's your last one. It's understood in how it relates to our lives. And that's something else we're going to really desperately try here to do. Uh, in, in the notes that I've been preparing, I'm going to do, I think, ten of the sessions or so. Dustin's doing, I think, or not ten. I'm doing like six and you're doing four. I'm doing seven and he's doing yep. five, something like that. But in the ones that I've prepared already, I'm constantly going back and, and putting into those notes, what does this mean to us? Why is this important for us to understand? So we're going to try to make it highly practical. And so that's the last one on your thing there. It has to be understood in how it relates to our lives. If we get done with this and all you leave with is head knowledge, we failed. Genuinely, we failed. Because what we want is how do we take that head knowledge and make it heart knowledge and how does it impact our lives and shape what we do. Dustin came up with a great quote from Charles Ryrie, another fantastic theologian. You just heard Michael mention that he sees himself as sort of a blue-collar, would you say blue-collar theologian, blue-collar teacher, blue-collar Bible guy. Uh, He's got a master's in divinity, right? But I think that many of us in this room might call ourselves blue-collar Bible guys, blue-collar Bible women. Would you agree with that? Would most of you say, hey, I wouldn't consider myself a theologian per se, If you've heard me up here before, oftentimes I will reference that many theologians say this and this about the text. I I personally am placing them, you know, up here as it pertains to my own knowledge, right? Would any of you say that you're an expert theologian or a theologian at all? Anybody? Well, you know, what's interesting is that every one of us really kind of is a theologian in our own right. 
Every single one of us has formed an opinion and a thought about the character of God and who God is, and that necessarily informs how we live and how we make decisions. And so, as Michael mentioned, Ryrie makes this great quote. He says, Theology is for everyone, and everyone needs to be a theologian. Think about that. Theology is for everyone, and everyone needs to be a theologian. But then he goes on from that to say, there is nothing wrong with being an amateur theologian or a professional theologian, but there is everything wrong with being an ignorant or sloppy theologian. There's nothing wrong with being an amateur or professional theologian, but there is everything wrong with being ignorant or sloppy. And so, as Michael has shared this morning so far, that's our hope going forward in this series, is that we have equipped all of us to not be ignorant or sloppy theologians, even if we're amateurs, that we can defend what we believe and why. And we're going to talk a little bit as we go through this. The, this, the um, pattern for today is just what we started with, kind of an introduction. We're going to talk about the different types of theologies. We're going to actually go on then, and we're going to look at um, what we're actually going to study. We're going to give you the topics, so you see them in the order that we're going to present them. And then the last thing we're going to do is, why study this? And it gets at the heart of what Dustin just shared. Why are we going to do this? Why is this so important for us? And so we'll cover that. But let's start with the different types of theology. Um, yeah, Alfredo, why don't you, could you uh, throw that up there for us, please? We've got a graphic here that's going to kind of lay things out for us here. Um, I mentioned theology. We often think of like, theology is the Bible. It's derived from the Bible. But theology is a very broad term, and there are different types of theology. And I'm gonna, we're going to lay this out so that you sort of understand But then we're going to narrow in on one specific type of theology, and that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time for the next few weeks here. I'm going to need some light just so I can see what I've got in my notes. But if you look at the diagram, we've got theology at the very, very top. Okay. Now we're going to go. We're going to mention what each one of these are, including the biblical, natural, historical, practical, and the systematic. But let's start with natural. I'm going to just talk a little bit here about what is natural theology. That's maybe a term you've never heard before. Okay. Think of the word natural, and then we think of that in terms of theology. What do you suspect that means? The study of what? Yeah, it's the study of nature, believe it or not. The study of of nature. But specifically, natural theology refers to the study of nature in regard to what it actually reveals about God, his creation, and specifically us as well, humankind. It's going to try to answer the question, what can we learn about God, his creation, and man. That's the question it's trying to answer. You look at creation, what can it answer for us? What can it tell us about God, about his creation? Now, the thing about natural theology is it relies primarily upon human observation, reason, and philosophy. Okay? Why is that? Because there's no words to it. In fact, Psalm 19 kind of mentions that, that when Psalm 19 talks about two different kinds of revelation, one is general revelation, which is natural theology. But it says right there, there's no voice. But it still speaks, which is rather interesting. So with natural theology, um, it's based on our human observation. It's something that we have to reason through and we, we, we look at. Now, because of that, it's not perfect. Think of something for a second. When you look out here and you look at God's creation, and you're now going to try to make a determination, what does that teach me about God? What is the first problem that comes to mind as you think about that? 
if it's going to be based on how you observe it. Can anybody think? What's that? Absolutely. That's one of them is that because we have a fallen mind, I love to say it this way, fallen minds looking at a fallen creation come up with fallen ideas. That's just the way it works. Another problem with the creation is what I just mentioned is that it's a fallen world. Now, it's going to be, this, this may not sound exactly as I want it, but the creation doesn't always work, and I had written down, as God intended it. But I think that's probably not right. I would rather say it this way. Creation doesn't communicate or function the way that God originally created it. It's fallen. But we're fallen too. So because of that, that's a limitation of natural theology. Not only is it limited in what God wants to communicate from it, in fact, the scriptures tell us that creation is only communicated to, to describe certain things about God. It talks about or shows his invisible nature, his divine glory, those things, but it doesn't tell us about salvation. So it's naturally limited just in terms of how God wants it to function, but it's limited because it's fallen, and it's limited because we're fallen and we have trouble interpreting it sometimes. Now, What's critical about that that we understand is the Bible then helps us to interpret it correctly. And you're going to see that with every single one of these things we talk about. Biblical theology is at the very top. See how it says theology and then you got biblical at the very top? That's because every of the other ones have to be tied back to one of the types of theology that we'll talk about. But when we're talking about natural theology, there's, there's some issues with it. But God still intends for it to communicate and it still does communicate today. Romans 1 tells us that man, as he looks at the creation, does what? Suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. So that's the problem with natural theology. But it's still something God designed, and even in his fallen state, can still teach us an awful lot about God when we look at it through the lens of Scripture. How about some examples? Yeah. Uh, what can we learn about God from studying the universe? Order. Right? And what did you say, Jackie? Someone created it. Intelligence design of some kind, yeah. Yeah. It's vast... It's huge, it's complex, and yet at the same time, it's very orderly. You know, I was talking the other day with a friend about, I don't know this very well myself, but those who have studied, if the earth was just slightly shifted differently on its axis, if it was just a little bit further from the sun or a little bit closer, if the orbit was different, you know, any number of very, very minute details, if they, if they had varied just a little bit, life would not be sustainable here. And so even just that points to a divine creator, right? Um, what can we learn about God by studying the human body? Power. Yeah. I think it's interesting that science has revealed by studying the human body and human patterns that humans are significantly, exponentially less effective and efficient after seven days of work. Hasn't God told us that we are to rest one out of every seven days, relax, rejuvenate? Science has shown that the human body needs to have a day of rest, one out of every seven. Because once you get to that eighth day, interestingly enough, your productivity, your efficiency, it just goes way down. That's fascinating. And think about all the human systems, all the, the physiological systems that keep us going are all working in tandem together. Just fascinating. Um, what can we learn about God by observing human behavior? <laughs> you know, one thing... What? Crazy. Craziness. <laughs> yep. Yep. We're sinners. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're sinners. So when we, when we look at you know, what we can learn about God from human behavior, and we look at it through a biblical lens, a biblical worldview, um, we see that, yeah, we're sinners. We can't uh, live up to his standard. Uh, but we also learn things like every human has been wired and made and created with, we'll say, a moral compass. Even a non-believer will agree, for the most part, that murder is a bad thing, right? It, it is inherent with us, within us, and that points to a creator. So human behavior also points to God. What about the next one? We've got um, something called historical theology. You ever think about that? That theology would have something to do with history? good definition of historical theology is it's a study of how Christians have understood or defined biblical doctrines at various times in church history. So again, historical theology is looking at how the things that we believe about God have changed over history. Now, you might say, well, but God is the same forever. Nothing ever changes, right? But our understanding of God has because we have everything from, you know, what God has revealed in the scriptures early on in the scriptures and what he has revealed later on. So imagine what people understood about Messiah after Christ came. Their understanding had changed. There's a historical element to that. But we look at it oftentimes from what the church has done in the past to address things like heresy or their creeds and their confessions. Um, you know, it's like anything else. As you, as you continue to study something, our understanding of it can be perfected. And because we're humans and, again, live in these fallen tents, we don't always interpret the Bible correctly. And so we go through periods of time where we wrestle with that and we struggle with that. I see that in my own life, that my, some things that I believed were true in seminary, I've sort of, over the years, changed because I continue to study the scriptures. I continue to, to dive into it. And so the church has been much like that. Now, that doesn't mean that God hasn't been accurate. It's, again, because we're interpreting a perfect book through a fallen lens. And so the reason that historical theology is so important is it helps us understand how heresy develops and what's critical to the church um, how we handle, how we study. You know, I think about um, how we've kind of broken down church history. When you think about historical theology, we break it off into four different periods of time. And there's some, there's unique things about those periods of time. The first is the patristic period, which is our church fathers. That's what patristic means. So we have these great church fathers, Origen and others, who, to be real honest, helped us understand what the church believes in concrete terms. They, they, that's what they were gifted at and skilled at. And so the first um, four or five hundred years of the church is referred to as that patristic period. And you'll often hear when we're looking at different um, topics, as we get to like systematic theology, we look at like eschatology, we'll say, well, what did the early church fathers believe? And the reason that's important is because they were right there at the very beginning. They were wrestling with this because there's a lot of heresy and other things. And so we oftentimes go back to see what believers believed in the first century because it's important. They were closer to the language. They were closer to understanding the Greek and the Hebrew than we are because we're so far removed from that now. And so that's called the patristic period. And so it's important for us to know what did they believe back then? How did they interpret these passages? It's especially important when it comes to things like eschatology with all the challenges today and how things, people we, change. And we talked for, uh, on Monday. You and I... Uh, mentioned all the, the various councils oh, absolutely, yeah. that, that gathered to yeah. define 
and to determine what the church's position was on particular spiritual matters. Yeah, a lot of the original church councils, which were basically when believers in the first few centuries would come together from all over the world, and they would they would debate and argue with one another, trying to nail down how do we describe the nature of Christ, or how do we describe the nature of sin, and that was almost they were almost always driven by heresy. One of them was called modalism which was that God was not three in one. He was basically one God that only displayed himself in three forms, but it was still the same God. Well, that was a violation of what the scriptures teach, that it is three persons in one God. And so they come together for a council. And if we go back and we look at their notes, it helps us understand how they reasoned through that and why they used very specific words to describe what they believed. And so that's that's um, why it's so important for us when it comes to understanding this. Another period was actually the Middle Ages, the Renaissance. Um, that's basically from 400 AD to one or about to about 1500, so about a thousand year, 900 year period. Um, you all know about the Renaissance. I've always wanted to go to a Renaissance fair, but my wife has always been like, ah, so we've never done it. But there were different challenges during that Renaissance period that impacted theology and how they had to wrestle through it. Now, that doesn't mean that what they believed actually changed necessarily, but it helps us to understand how they addressed it and how they worked through it. And sometimes they do come to a slightly different understanding of maybe how to represent something. Um, what about the Reformation or the Post-Reformation? That's the next thousand years, or I'm sorry, the next 250 years or so. It's about 1500 A.D., or some people say it A.D. 1500 to about A.D. 1750. You know names like Martin Luther. Remember what he did? He was a Catholic priest. Nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church saying, what we've been teaching and doing is wrong and challenged the Catholic Church on their teachings. Um, and then you have the modern era, which basically was from that Reformation period, 1750 or so, up to where we're at. Today it's called the modern period. Um, Dustin's got some examples. Uh, the first one is from Martin Luther himself. Yeah. Uh, you know, is the Renaissance festivals, is that because you got to take a big turkey leg and just yeah, go on Yeah, turkey it? leg. Is that, is that what Amy's, a, you know? No, she would eat a turkey leg at Disney, but doesn't want to go get one at a Renaissance. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so Michael mentioned the, the Renaissance period and, and Martin Luther's 95 Theses. Um, how many of us know generally what that sought to do? It, it reminded the church of scripture, that grace in God alone, salvation in Christ alone, grace by faith, um, that uh, all glory belongs to God alone. Those are the five solas, which was part of Martin Luther's thesis, right? And it was a reminder that the church had gotten away from this. Had gotten away from just God, God alone. They they had started to layer on all kinds of things for salvation. He said, no, we we need a correction. Um, A second period, the Age of Enlightenment and Reason in the 1600s in Europe, um, which emphasized reason over revelation and believed that man could obtain truth about the world and reality and religion on his own. Does that sound a little bit familiar even today? Um, It impacted Christianity and kind of in a negative way. And then Michael also mentioned that we have the modern era. And you hear from us regularly up front here from the pulpit about what we are faced in this modern era, or we might say a post-modern era. You know, I've, I've read that 
previous generations to us had generally agreed that, you know, I understand that I've fallen short of the glory of God. I understand that I'm a sinner. And, you know, many of them went to church. Some may or may not have gone to church. But generally speaking, they kind of agreed. You get to a postmodern generation and they go, I'm a sinner? Says who? Autonomy rules now, doesn't it? Relativism. Whatever you believe is okay for you. That's fine. You go ahead and believe that. And whatever I believe is good for me. I'll stay out of your business. You stay out of my business. And so even evangelizing in a postmodern world oftentimes is a struggle. We have to find new means of apologetics because to go to somebody of this generation or these generations thereafter and say, hey, you know, what you're doing is really sin. Previously they'd go, yeah, I know. But today, somebody might say, why? I disagree. No, I don't think so. Or so says you. Right? And, and we see trends in the church today of a, of a postmodern culture and relativism. We see trends in the church like the prosperity gospel, right? That says, well, you know, Jesus really, really wants to bless you, and your salvation in Jesus means that you should never have a financial struggle, that you should never be encumbered with sickness and cancer, or any number of other things that the prosperity gospel tries to promote as a result of salvation in Jesus, which is inconsistent with the word of God. Um, how about the social gospel? You hear us refer from time to time up here about the social gospel that essentially says, no, Jesus didn't just come to redeem and reconcile the individual back to God the Father, but he came to redeem culture. That what he did... And what we saw him do in the scriptures um, was an example for how we are to live. And it's supposed to radically change the society and the culture in which we live in. That was not Jesus' point. He did those things as a means of proving and validating his divinity. And while our salvation may motivate us, you know, our thanksgiving, our gratitude for the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus might motivate us to do great things and show acts of kindness and grace and mercy to others... We do it out of thanksgiving because of our salvation, but not because we think, oh, this is what it's about and this is what we're told to do. Because Jesus wants us to go plant a tree for an elementary school that in some way, culture is going to be transformed and redeemed. That's essentially what the social gospel seeks to accomplish and seeks to propose. And we know that that's not true. And there are many other avenues today that we wrestle with in the church that are a result of a post modern society. You know, Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. That's the neat thing about historical theology. Is it's rare to find some new teaching that you can't go back in church history and go, yeah, they dealt with something very similar. And what's critical about, about this is historical theology and understanding um, what historical the- theology is helps us to understand trends, but also how great theologians, godly men and women of the past dealt with those things. And it becomes an example for us as well. And so there are people that, this is what they do, they study historical theology. Um, I'm not a historical theologian, but boy, I tell you, when I study the scriptures, I am often going back, looking at the church fathers, or looking at what so-and-so said, or what somebody said, because 
they were closer to it than I was, and they, they helped to shape my thinking of it. But it also helps me recognize and understand what's going on around us here, because there really isn't anything new under the sun. And so that's why historical theology is important. But again, it's the study of how our understanding has maybe changed or how the church has changed. Great example in the, um, with Martin Luther, you know, for hundreds of years, the gospel of grace was in some respects lost. And people were being told that they could buy forgiveness through the indulgences, the sale of indulgences. They were told they couldn't understand the scriptures. And Martin Luther said, no, the average person should be able to read the book. No, you can't be selling indulgences. And that radically then brought the church back to a sound understanding of the scriptures. So that's, that's historical theology and why it's so critical. Let's look at the next one, um, practical theology. Now what does that sound like to you? I say practical theology, what's the first thing that might come to mind? How, how might you describe that if you could guess at it? Yeah, it's basically how you apply your theology. Um, a study of how to apply the theological principles and understanding to everyday life. It tries to answer the question, how does this principle or this doctrine explain what we see in the world around us? And how do I apply it to my life? If you want to understand why somebody is, is wicked, basically you can go to the scriptures, you can study. But um, practical theology is where you take what you see in the scriptures... And you then look at the world through that lens and it helps you to understand what you see. But it also helps you, when you study something, you go, okay, this is a great truth. And it's just head knowledge. But what do I do with it? Now you're practicing that kind of theology. Practical theology. Um, it actually is what you see every Sunday morning. When we get up to teach, our goal isn't just to say, this is what it says. We oftentimes will encourage you to apply it some way. Now, it's not our job to be the Holy Spirit in your life. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But you should be thinking as you're listening, what do I do with this? How do I walk out the door with this? There's more to this than just sticking it into my head. It's making it practical. That's why the Lord speaks to us. You know, Jesus gave the Holy Spirit and says he'll convict the world of sin. What's that all about? Trying to make it practical. Trying to take truth and make it practical. Um, so it shapes how we talk, it shapes how we walk, it even, believe it or not, shapes our teaching when we're up here preaching on a Sunday morning. Because we're thinking practically, what does this do? It starts with us. If I'm not studying and, and asking the question, what am I being taught by this? What am I supposed to do with this? I can't stand up in front of you on a Sunday morning and expect you to do anything with it. That's practical theology. At a, at a personal level, when, when he and I first started studying together, like, a decade ago or whenever. You know, it was it was kind of a discipleship type relationship. And well, it really still is. Uh, and, you know, what I really needed assistance from him was help in dissecting and breaking down the word in many of the ways that he does for us. And so while I was learning those tactics and those traits and those skills, sometimes we get to the bottom of something and he go, now what? Meaning I had dissected it really, really well. I had, I had you know, done a word study and, and, you know, the structure and the grammar and all that. And he'd go, yeah, but so what? You know, in so many words, it was like, okay, so what do we do with this? And it was a great, great reminder on an ongoing basis that, you know, you can, you can dissect this passage really, really well, very, very technically, and then still miss what God intends to do with it, which is to change our hearts help to shape our lives and show us practical ways to walk out what he has just told us, what he has just said. 
I mean, think about the example that we have um, from Leviticus in, in many different places where God says, be holy as I am holy. Well, what does that look like? That's hard, right? You know, when, when we think about God's command, be holy as I am holy, oh, are you kidding? But what we see in Jesus is he says, well, I haven't come to abolish the law. I haven't come to get rid of it, but I have come to fulfill it. And so we can be holy as God is holy because we've been washed in the blood of Jesus. And as such, our lives should reflect it. Our lives should look differently now that we have salvation in Jesus. We should live in practical ways that appear to be holy. Think about when Jesus said, be merciful. Just as God our Father is merciful. He said that in Luke 6. I mean, what does that look like? How, how are we to be graceful and merciful as God the Father has been? I think about the story that Jesus gave about the, uh, the slave or the servant whose, whose complete debt was forgiven, right? Completely forgiven, washed clean, the, the ledger says zero. He walks out goes over to a gentleman that owes him money and just starts demanding that he get paid back for what he is owed. And what we see there in that example was this individual had just completely forgotten about the grace and the mercy that had been extended to him when he was in that house and his own debt had been forgiven. Isn't that a great picture of grace? Isn't that a great picture of salvation that we have in Christ Jesus? That he has said, your debt, your sin debt has been completely forgiven. And so when we go out and live practically, we should view life through that lens and extend that same grace and mercy to others so that we might show them Christ or lead them to Christ if they don't already know him personally. So practical, practical ways in which the grace of God is manifest in our own lives. You're just asking the question, what do I do with this? Makes you a practical theologian. Yeah. And really, that's what God expects of us. You know how many commands are there in the Old and the New Testament where the Lord says, do my commands. They're called commands for a reason. But you notice a lot of times it doesn't tell you exactly how to do that. It says, do it. Be merciful. Be loving. Be gracious. How do I do that? You're a practical theologian when you ask that. You're going to see that as we go through this, too, as we talk about each one of these topics that we're going to cover over the course of the next couple of months. We're going to ask, you know, okay, so what does this mean to us? Why is this important to us? And we're going to see how that practical theology gets worked out. Quizzes? Are we going to do quizzes? No, no quizzes. But we could if you really want. Um, You'll notice now, we're going to go to biblical theology, which, as I mentioned, there are five different groupings. Natural, we've talked about. Historical, we've talked about. Practical. But then we put biblical at the very top because each one of those kind of goes back. Natural, the Bible is important because it helps us understand what we see in nature. The Bible is important because as we look at historical, how doctrines have changed, we've looked at how our church fathers and others have interpreted the Bible. Practical, how do I apply the Bible? All of them go back. That's why biblical is on the top. Now, I'm going to confuse you a little bit here. Everything is biblical, Right? I mean, we just talked about all this stuff, right? So when you think of biblical theology, you might think, oh, biblical theology, that's just theology from the Bible. It is. But biblical theology re- re- um, describes something very, very specific. So I'm going to try to be as precise as I can here. Dustin and I talked about this the other day. Um, Bible college students, seminary students even struggle with, the, with exactly what is biblical theology. It's not just theology that comes from the Bible. Biblical theology is this. It's the study of biblical doctrines as they are revealed in individual books, 
or portions of the Bible. In addition, it's how they are revealed chronologically and historically through the Bible. You'd be a little bit um, more specific about that. Actually, you know what? Why don't you do an example on this? Yeah, so um, it tries to answer questions like um, what does the Old Testament teach us about salvation versus the New Testament teach us about salvation? Did Um, you realize that there's those two different focuses there? Yeah. So that's the portion we were talking about, that it looks at a portion of the Bible. What does that portion say, Old Testament versus New? You know, an Old Testament concept of salvation would, is very much natural, right? It would, it's very much a deliverance from um, circumstance, circumstances. Um, it's very national in nature, right? Uh, how many times did we see in the book of Judges, when we did that study, that uh, the nation of Israel... Would, would sort of turn their backs on God. They drift away from um, His ways, His commands, and they would experience some oppression, uh, some troubles, and God would send a judge, and God would rescue them, and they might turn back to God for a period of time, and then we see this kind of cycle. So we see in the Old Testament that the idea of salvation is very much natural. It's very much uh, salvation from circumstances. Um, but what about the New Testament? Salvation in the New Testament is more focused on eternal life, right? I mean, Paul has said that to die is gain. So we see salvation represented in the Word of God, but we see it in two different ways. Both are true, mm-hmm. different aspects. Yeah. One taught through the Old Testament, one taught through the New. That's biblical theology. It looks at sort of like a narrow focus on, well, what does the Old Testament say? What does the New Testament say on the same topic? Um, Another way to look at it, um, I don't know if we have this as an example in here or not. Um, Is that one coming up a little bit later about James? Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. Um, Let me give another example here, and Dustin's got one as well. Um, Another example of biblical theology might be what do the individual books of the Bible teach about the Messiah? So you'd say something like, huh, what does Genesis teach about the Messiah? Anybody know what Genesis teaches about the Messiah? He's there. Well, Genesis chapter 3, when God looks at Adam and Eve right after the fall and tells them that a seed will come through Eve who will crush the head of the serpent. That's what we call the Tetragrammaton, which is the first gospel. Proto-Evangelon. Proto-Evangelon, I'm sorry. Um, the first gospel. Okay. Well, you get to Abraham, and what do we learn about Messiah? Well, now we know it's a seed of Abraham who will bless all the nations. So we get to that section of Genesis, we learn a little bit more about the Messiah. How about when we get to Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy, God revealed how he would raise up another prophet like Moses. We now have a little bit more we learn about the Messiah. You see how God is revealing a little bit, then a little bit more, then a little bit more? He does that throughout the scriptures. In fact, I'll give you some other examples. Second Samuel, God revealed that David's descendant would have an eternal kingdom. We now learn a little bit more about Messiah. How about the Psalms? God revealed that Messiah would be his son, would teach in parables, um, it talks about how he would die. It actually says that Jesus, the Messiah, would not suffer decay. I could go through through Isaiah, through Daniel, Zechariah, Malachi. What we see is that 
over the course of time, throughout the scriptures, God revealed more and more and more about Messiah. That's biblical theology because you can go back and you can say, what did Genesis say about Messiah? Oh, what did Deuteronomy say about the Messiah? What did Malachi say about it? In fact, when Jesus came, Jesus himself revealed even more about the Messiah. They didn't know about him coming, dying, and then a period of time in between where he would then ultimately come back and return. So, biblical theology, again, isn't just theology from the Bible. It's specifically sort of putting a spotlight on different sections of the scripture to address different topics so that you can get a good breath, if you will. And so that's, where, that's what confuses a lot of people is it's hard to think of, think of that. And it's, and it's easiest to simply say, break it down by a book. What does a book say? Like, what does it teach us about salvation here versus what does it teach us about salvation here? Or a group. What do the prophets teach us? What do Psalms teach us? What does the Old and the New Testament teach us? Or even maybe, what does the Apostle Paul teach us about mm-hmm. a subject? Go through all of his epistles. Or what does Peter tell us? Great example. What do we learn about suffering from Peter? First and second Peter. Great letters. What do we learn about suffering from Paul? When you go to his discussion of his sufferings for Christ. And what it is, is you learn different aspects of those topics as they were revealed chronologically, but also how individuals revealed those things to us under the inspiration of the scripture. Well, you know, an example of that is um, what Paul says about works as it pertains to salvation and faith, right? Paul's like, well, hey, hold on a second here. And in Romans, in Galatians, and Ephesians, you know, he says, you're not saved by your works. You're saved by faith alone, right? But then, you know, if you look at James, what does James say? Well, James is going to take works and he's going to discuss it from a perspective of a natural salvation, right? If, if you don't do anything, you're likely to die. That, that works will help you in your circumstances. If you don't practice what God has said, you'll have a difficult time being delivered in a very natural way of your trials. James's focus about works is in the midst of trials that you're going through, right? Uh, you fail to give somebody who shows up on your doorstep uh, a warm coat and invite him or her in with a warm bowl of soup, they might leave your doorstep, go out and die, physically die. And so James says, you know, our faith is revealed and salvation is revealed in a natural way through works, right? But Paul says, spiritually, you're not saved by doing a whole bunch of things you're saved by faith and so what we see through biblical theology if we study James his perspective is this way and if we study biblical theology through some of Paul's writings it's it's like this and they're not actually in conflict this is Martin Luther's big failure on works Martin Luther when he looked at Paul he said what does Paul say about works and he says Paul says works is not needed then he goes to James and he says what does James say and James says Faith without works is dead. And Martin Luther went, oh, we should throw out James. Because he conflicts with Paul. That's a failure of biblical theology. Because what he should have done is said, why is Paul saying works is necessary for salvation? And what does he mean by salvation? Paul is talking about salvation from hell. And works plays no part in salvation from hell. Then what he should have done is gone to James and said, well... What does James say, and what does James mean by salvation? Because in the book of James, salvation isn't about salvation from hell. It's rescue and deliverance from trial. And in that respect, works is absolutely necessary. 
Because if you don't apply works to your faith, you won't make it through trials. And so, that's biblical theology. What did James say? What did he mean by it? What did Paul say? What did he mean by it? And we know those things don't conflict with one another. But we get a very broad understanding then of works and salvation, how they work together. That's biblical theology. Um, That leads us to the very last topic, at least in these groups, before we get to exactly what we're going to study. And that's that one in gold in the center, systematic theology. Now, we did this in an order like this for a reason. Um, Natural theology is sort of the broadest of all. It's what we learn simply looking at God's creation. The most narrow is when you come down into biblical and then systematic. Systematic theology takes what you learn in biblical theology. What did Paul say? What did James say? What did the Old Testament say? What did the New Testament say about this, this topic? Okay, About faith. That builds your systematic theology. So you take what you learn in biblical theology, you then organize it, and you put it into something called systematic theology. That's actually going to be what we're going to study here for the next three months. Very specifically, systematic theology. And the reason that that's important is it answers questions like, what does the entire Bible say? One of the problems in Christianity is people get hyper-focused on a little verse, and they make that their theology, the only thing they understand or believe about that topic, and they ignore everything else that's written in the scriptures. And you can't do that. You have to be well rounded. You have to be very broad. That's systematic theology. The best way I can describe systematic theology when I was in seminary was I went through exegesis courses. What that means is we took a book of the Bible, we translated it, and then we worked on just that book. We would write papers on just that book. We would argue this verse or that verse from that book and what it meant before our professor. Okay? That was the slow trickle. Imagine a whole entire semester on just a book like Philemon. Okay? Slow trickle. Then there's the fire hose, which is systematic theology. Welcome to a class on eschatology. And they turn on the fire hose. We're going to tell you everything the Bible says about end times. So that's the fire hose versus the slow trickle. And we need both of those. We need both of those. Because we teach in a, I'll say, a biblical theology approach on Sunday mornings. We give you the slow trickle. Over time, you'll hear us talk about suffering through different books that we approach and talk about, and you'll build an understanding of suffering in the Bible. That's systematic theology. So it would take us forever to teach you everything in the Bible by that slow trickle method. But that's where you really get into it. right? That's where you really understand stuff. But it's important that we also be taught like a fire hose. Because, face it, we only have so many years on this planet. We, If we wanted to study, say, for instance, one of these, Biblia, or I'm sorry, let's, let's do eschatology again. If you just wanted to study eschatology by yourself, it would be a lifetime study. You'd study nothing else, which means you don't understand the whole counsel of God's word. But there are people who do that. There are people that study. Pastor Jim Custer studies eschatology. So he can teach us what we couldn't learn on our own because he's already done it and spent a lifetime doing it. He can give us the Reader's Digest version of it. And that's, in some respects, the value of systematic theology. So, And, and, and systematic theology should also play a role, I think, when, when, st- when studying Scripture. One of the first things that you, know, you remind many of us when studying Scripture, uh, you get to a, sometimes a passage, and as you're dissecting it, you might feel like it says one thing, and, and it may. And we would call that 
the immediate context, right? Who's, who's saying it? Why are they saying it? What, what is God trying to communicate from, from that particular passage? And, and, and the immediate text surrounding that helps to uh, interpret that. Mm-hmm. But, but there are times where you might come away with you know, an, an understanding or an explanation of that particular passage or, or that word and go, man, that, that seems really inconsistent with the Bible as a whole. And we would call that like the broad context. Yeah. Right. Systematic theology helps you interpret individual verses correctly. How many of you got little cross-reference notes in your Bible? Remember those in the middle column or on the bottom that tell you other verses that say the same thing? That's systematic theology. They're there so you can double-check. You look at a verse and you go, huh, really? And then you look it up in other places and you go, oh, wait a minute, now I understand this verse in the light of everything else. That's systematic theology. So, yeah. um, we're going to take about another 10 minutes here. We're going to go a little longer than, than normal, but we're going to take about 10 minutes here now just to sort of finish up. But I'm going to have Dustin run through the topics that we're going to cover just briefly here so you get a list of what we're going to do. And then um, we're going to just spend uh, the last few minutes at the end to talk about why this is so important. We're going to give you some Bible verses that will explain it to us. So Dustin, why don't you go ahead and tell us. Absolutely. Some of these are going to be um, very obvious to us as you see them. The, the name themselves is just going to explain what they are. These are the big theological words I told you about. Yep. So we're going to take a week, with the exception of theology proper, we're going to take a week on each of these and discuss this going forward. Um, so what we'll have first will be bibliology, and, and Michael will do that, and it's the study of the Bible. Talk about its inspiration and stuff like that. Yep. Um, then you'll see theology proper. That's actually a study of the nature and the character of God. Michael's going to do that. And it's going to take two weeks because, well, God's kind of a big guy. Right? So, the study of God and the nature of God will do for a couple weeks. Um, Christology, again, probably self-evident, but that's going to be the study of Christ. Michael will take us through that one. Now, pneumatology... That is the study of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I will do that one. Um, then you'll see angelology and demonology. Obviously, the study of angels and demons. So I'll take us through that one. Um, anthropology. Many of you probably are familiar with that term. It's a store, right? <laughs> Anthropology, uh, obviously, is the um, study of the nature and the character of man. Michael will take us through that one. Homardiology uh, is the study of sin. We give that one to Dustin. So I'll be teaching that one, yes. With practical examples. <laughs> With practical examples. <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah, so... Um, so yes, yeah, so I... There's soteriology, which is, will be the next one, and, and that is the study of salvation. Now, obviously you guys can see what Michael has done here. Yeah. He's taken all the really, really holy ones, and you know, he, <laughs> he, he gave me pneumatology about the Holy Spirit, but then he wants me to do angels and demons, the study of sin, and then salvation. I'm trying to send him a message. Yeah. You know? uh, ecclesiology. Study of the church. Yeah, what is the church? And, you know. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? And then, and then finally, eschatology, which is the study of end times. And Michael will do ecclesiology and eschatology. So, so that'll, that'll be it for us as we go through these things. And again, it's going to be like a fire hose. Um, we'll try to make it very, very practical, but they'll be, you know, right now, verse, we'll, we'll just reference some verses for you as well. We'll quote them instead of having you look them up. Um, 
It's going to be a challenge. And in the end, you will not be ignorant or sloppy theologians. (laughs) You will be amateur or professional. And, you know, I'll I'll warn you right now, we're obviously not going to cover everything. We just can't, you know. So we may not answer all of your questions, but... um, We'll do our best to, to get us through that, and uh, I think it'll be fun. I think it'll be a good challenge for us. Now, the last thing we're going to do here is why should we study this? Um, you may have some stuff in your head already, but let me just talk about this historically and then um, today. You know, back in the 13, 14, 15th century, um, science was referred, I mean, sorry, um, theology was called the queen of science. Did you know that? It was called the queen of sciences. It was referred to as a science. And that's because studying theology, they thought that by studying theology, it would undergird every other science. If you didn't understand God, if you didn't understand the scriptures, if you didn't understand um, what the Bible taught, you could not be a good scientist. That was their conviction. They believed it. If you think about how Harvard and Yale and some of the universities started as theology schools, and that's because it was the queen of all sciences. That's where you began your education. If you tried to be a scientist and you weren't a good theologian, you weren't given any credibility. That's where we used to be. Um, Almost every field of modern science, believe it or not, was founded by Christians. I'm going to give you some names here. You might know the name Galileo Galilei, right? What did he found? He's the father of what? Astronomy, exactly. What about Isaac Newton? He's another Christian. What, did he, what was he the father of? Yeah, modern physics. Um, how about Gregor Mandel? You might not be quite as familiar with him. Maybe, do you know what? Did you hear that, Sandy? Yeah, he was the father of genetics, right? Um, Louis Pasteur, don't say the father of milk. Um, Louis Pasteur was what? The father of germs, microbiology and bacteriology, right? Um, another one, did anybody know who the father of taxonomy was? He's the guy who came up with the naming system, genus and species. Anybody know? This was, I didn't know his name either. Carl Linnaeus was his name. Good Christian man. He came up with the naming of the gene, like how to classify animals. We have, you know, biblical kinds and such. Well, he tried to give names to them, genus and species. Um, the list goes on and on and on. You've heard the name Kepler and, and others who evolved with um, uh, telescopes and, and whatnot. Christians have been at the forefront of sciences for millenniums. But where are we today? Today, most sciences are dominated by those who reject the idea of a creator God. Some are deists, some are atheists, but they don't believe that theology... In fact, they believe that studying theology is a hindrance. We have colleges and universities today that have removed professors from their positions because of their creationist standpoint or their understandings of God or other moral issues. It's frowned upon. Um, Even in churches today, believe it or not, it's called divisive. Theology is called non-essential. We should focus on other things like God being a loving God and we should just focus on practical things. Studying theology, we don't need that. We don't need doctrine. Don't preach doctrine to us. It's boring. It's divisive. It just causes us to you know, have divisions, etc. That's where we're at. So as a result, the American church today, should I use a pleasant word, like ignorant, or should I say stupid? Um, Barna, Lifeway, others that research what the church knows, all of them have claimed that we are living in a time in the American church today where we are the most biblically illiterate generation in history. So, 
Yes. In uh, Billy Graham's monthly magazine, uh, there's five articles. Uh, it's called Decision Magazine. Called Progressive Christianity. Mm-hmm. That probably fits in that historical type that we were talking about. Still probably boils down to man doing what's right in his own eyes. Yeah. Interpreting scripture to please your desires. So sometime if you guys could, that'll maybe get tossed in somewhere, but it's maybe not telling us anything that we don't know something about, but it's uh, big on the horizon. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I think you can just probably YouTube if you want to read those articles written by some Franklin Wright's one, and then I haven't read them all, but it's on my to-do list. I'm sure it's good stuff for us. So that leads us to the last four things we wanted to share with you tonight. comes down to why we, why we think this is important. The first one is this. Studying theology and doing what we're going to be doing here in systematic theology is important because it shows us how we can know the truth. I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. He wrote this in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in what? The knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence, for by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Notice he says he's given to us everything we need. Everything we need for life, which is the secular, and godliness, which is the spiritual. And so one of the first reasons we need to study this is plain and simple, so that we can know the truth. You know, a second reason we should study theology. Uh, Turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15 so that we can grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to study theology so we can grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, Paul writes in verse 11, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head even Christ. Isn't that similar to what we say we see in the church today and what we're plagued in modern culture? All kinds of thoughts. Paul says we've got to remain true to sound doctrine so that we can mature in Christ. So we do it so we know the truth. We do it so that from that truth we can grow. Third thing, so that we might be protected from false doctrine. I want you to turn to first or 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to look at just a few verses here. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Notice what he says here. Preach the word. Preach the word. Preach what's in it. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For a time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's what we're warned about. A time will come, a time has come, where they will turn their ears away from the truth. And so Paul tells Timothy, preach the word, the doctrines, the things that have been handed down to him to protect the sheep. If we don't, we'll go the same way that every other aberrant church has gone. A lot of great churches out there, but a lot of them are no longer teaching the truth. The last thing, um, and then we'll close with this, the last reason why we'll want to study this. Yep, very, very similar to point number three, so that we can defend our faith and what we believe. You know, so the first reason we study theology is so we can know the truth about God. The second is so that we can grow in our relationship with Jesus. The third is so we can protect ourselves from false teaching. And the fourth is so that we can defend our faith and what we believe. And I'm just going to read 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15. You guys know this. But sanctify Christ so <clears throat> as, as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So the fourth reason that we study theology is that we can defend our faith and explain and defend what we believe. So, we took a little bit longer today. Um, this is going to be the challenge going forward, is trying to get in what we need to get in. So, But we will try to keep ourselves down to that 45-50 minute schedule typically. But we appreciate we've gone about an hour and 15 minutes today. So thank you for your attention and your time. Um, I'm looking forward to this. I think it'll be great for us to do. Um, it's even been it's been challenging and fun for me to study back through some of this stuff and coordinate notes and stuff and get ready to teach some of this stuff. So it'll be a good thing for us as well. And you want that of your teachers, right? You want us to be making sure we're stretched.